Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Friday, January 7th, 2022. Obviously a big show this week, Drew. Lots of news, with the biggest story being today's announcement of Pixar's turning red that it's not going to be released theatrically on March 11th, but rather will now make its debut on Disney Plus on that same day. Omicron and the pandemic did factor into this decision. In fact, earlier this evening, Drew, you on Twitter uh, mentioned the New York Times piece that just got posted this afternoon that talked about the, how the number of hospitalized kids who are testing positive for COVID is really jumping up. Yes. Omicron and the pandemic weren't the only reasons that the Mouse House decided to change Turning Red from theatrical release into an animated feature, which then would debut on the company's subscription streaming service. It's kind of a complicated situation, right? Yes. Okay. And you're going to explain that at length <laughs> later in today's show. Okay. Happy to do it. On the second half... Of today's show, Drew and I have an interview with Derek Dryman and Jennifer Kluska, who are the directors of Hotel Transylvania Transformania, the fourth and final film in the Sony Picture Animation franchise, which will be available for streaming on Amazon Prime Video starting this coming Friday, January 14th. But first, the news, and as always, the news portion of fine-tuning is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Uh, speaking of which, though, that if you were paying attention to the animated projects that have stepped in the spotlight this past week, 2022 is looking an awful lot like 1992, Drew. Take, for example, earlier this week via Twitter, we learned the production on X-Men 97, which is the continuation of X-Men the Animated Series, uh, which debuted on Fox Kids back in October of 1992. It's officially underway. They announced this, it, it was a Disney Plus day, the, what, November 12th last year, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, by the way, the, the way we learned that work had begun on this continuation of the X-Men animated series was kind of cool. Uh, Cal Dodd, who voiced Wolverine for the original version of the series, tweeted out yesterday, guess what I'm doing in the studio today? Uh, great to be back. And had a picture of him <laughs> holding up three fingers, you know, like Wolverine's claws. So X-Men 97 will debut on Disney Plus on a yet-to-be-determined date. Meanwhile, over at Paramount Plus, another set of characters that, that came on the scene back in 92... Drew, did you ever see Frog Baseball, the Mike Judd short? Animated this when he was only 19 years old. It's just two minutes long. And uh, Spike and Mike selected it for that year's version of their Sick and Twist Animation Festival. And then folks at MTV saw it and optioned the rights to air the short on Liquid Television. Frog Baseball gets a huge response from MTV viewers, which is why then they order a series built around the two characters featured in this short, Beavis and Butthead. So did you ever catch any of the Spike and Mike? I, I think so. I mean, I, I watched Liquid Television, but I, mm -hmm. I was not I was not at the point of bothering my parents to, to uh, <laughs> take me to illicit animation festivals yet. That would come a few years later. So, there yeah, we go. Yeah. There we go. Well, yeah. more to the point, you, you didn't really have to wait 
for Beavis and Butter. They showed up on MV, MTV in March of 93 and then show ran for seven seasons. And there was a feature-length film released to theaters, Beavis and Butthead Do America, in December of 96. And the show got revived like 10 years ago, right? Uh, 2011 for like one season? Yeah, I was trying to figure that out and mm-hmm. what that one was. Was that the one where they were like, they were commenting on like YouTube videos and things. Yeah. Okay. They deviated from the special sauce. Right. What's kind of intriguing about this thing that's been announced for, for Paramount Plus, uh, Mike Judge uh, announced that they're going to be in a brand new movie with that subscription streaming service. And the concept art he tweeted out shows a middle aged version of Beavis and Butthead. They're pot by in balding and. If I'm looking to see something like that, I'll just look in the mirror. I don't know if I want my Beavis and Butthead to be adults. Well, do you remember in the movie where they they meet the older versions of themselves around a campfire? <laughs> yes. Uh, do you remember who voiced one of those characters? I, well, I, I remember. Well, Bruce Willis was a different character in he the is. movie. He right? is. Um, yeah. I don't know who was the uh, who were the voices then. I want to say at least one of them was David Letterman. Who who took? Oh, that's right. That's he, right. He took great pride in being, you know. The, I want to say it was Butthead's father. Right, but we also have to say that a movie could mean something different because the South Park movies are between forty-five and a, minutes and an hour. This is so. I, I'm hoping for an actual feature-length Beavis and Butthead adventure. I would love to see Mike Judd make another run at uh, King of the Hill. Yeah. That was a great show. This is the age we live in. Things are getting revived and all manner of things. In fact, that brings us to our the next project we're talking about, Alice's Wonderland Bakery. This is a, a new animated series for preschoolers, which will be debuting February 9th, simulcast on Disney Channel and Disney Junior. The Mouse has really, really, really high hopes for this program. Uh, it's supposed to be a continuation of the version of Alice in Wonderland that Disney Studios released to theaters back in July of 51. I don't know if you saw the, the sort of teaser trailer work in progress of video that popped up online earlier this week, but the conceit of the show is that the title character is the great-granddaughter of the Alice that fell down Disney's version of the rabbit hole. And so this Alice is a baker at the Wonderland Bakery, and she uses the enchanted recipe book that her great-grandmother left behind to wish up a whip-up magical treats for her friends and customers who all also happen to be direct descendants of other famous Wonderland characters. Drew, I thought you'd be fascinated by the folks that they've put together to make this show. It's, it's kind of an A-team of Disney television animation. Uh, Chelsea Bile, who worked on the Peabody award-winning Doc McStuffins as the executive producer, Frank Montagna, who wrote Heard on Eleanor of Avalor for Disney, co-executive producer as well as the show's art director, Lisa Kettle, who wrote Disney's Mirror Royal Detective is the story editor. The animated series writing team includes Melinda LaRose, who worked on Disney's Vampirina, and Marissa Evans-Sandon, uh, who worked on Disney's Fancy Nancy, and then uh, episodic directors of Alice's Wonderland include Stephen Umberley, who directed episodes of Monsters at Work for Disney+, and Ariel Yet, who has directed episodes of Disney Junior's latest hit, The Chicken Squad. So this sort of a murderer's row approach also includes 
the vocal talent for Alice's Wonderland Bakery. They've got Craig Ferguson as the doorknob, Eden Espinoza, who previously had voiced characters on Rapunzel's Tangled Adventure as the Queen of Hearts. By the way, this is a Broadway star who started off singing at Disneyland. She was Pocahontas and also appeared in that show's animation or that theme park's animation show. John Sakata is the voice of the King of Hearts. And Bobby Monahan and uh, Vanessa Bayer are the twins Tweedledoo and Tweedledon't. It's getting a little... <laughs> they're kind of reaching there. Uh, and then Donald Fazan from Scrubs is Harry the March Hare. And finally, I thought you'd like this one. Uh, Matthew Moy, uh, who previously worked on Two Broke Girls, is the David of Spades. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Well, you know, it's... Uh, I'm learning more about this show than I ever thought or wanted to know, so that I am just being bowled over by information. The David of Spades. The this David of Spades. This is real. Okay. This is real. Okay. But at the same time, what is also real is uh, next month in New York, Toy Fair, uh, which as of right now is still scheduled to happen at the Javits Center, February 19th to 22nd, Supposedly, will feature a rollout rollout of a huge pile of of Alice in Wonderland bakery items. So we're talking dolls, role play products, figures, and they're all slated to hit stores in fall of this year. So, if we cut to the chase, this is really what this is about. Disney believes Alice's Wonderland bakery, particularly with you know the aspirational aspect of of cooking and being artistic and that sort of thing could be their next big hit heading into the holiday season of uh, uh, 2022. And to help this along, a digital soundtrack for this new Disney Junior show, uh, which, by the way, uh, the setup for this thing is it's two 11-minute long episodes per show, and each of the episodes then features an original song. So Walt Disney Records will be releasing that soundtrack next month, which will showcase a number of songs from Alice's Wonderland Bakery. Because this is what the mouse does best. You know, it, it creates something and then nobody else quite w- walks out products this way. And I, I bring this up because if you pivot to Pixar's upcoming film, uh, Turning Red, the first wave of Turning Red merch becomes available on February 8th, four and a half weeks before this Domi She film debuts on Disney+. Plus. The art of Turning Red comes out on February 2nd. The graphic novel version of the film won't be available till May 24th, and that's supposedly being done to keep the storyline of this new Pixar film under wraps. It's probably it's probably your fault, I would say. <laughs> what have I done now? I mean, you are always look you're always rushing to the back of the page to to see what the how it wraps up. Did you ever see the movie uh, When Harry Met Sally? Of course. Uh, okay. Great New Year's movie too, by the way. It is a great New Year's movie, but I. When Harry cracked the back of the book, the, the woman I was at the movie theater with actually slapped me in the, lar- the arm loud enough that the people around us turned their heads. You know, to the effect of, why did you do that? And it's like, you do that. And it's like, yes, I know. I'm a constructionist. I want to know how things work. Speaking of which, Drew, if the company had such high hopes for turning red, so why today did Pixar Animation, uh, you know, this Pixar Animation Studios, uh, did we learn that this isn't going to be released the- theatrical anymore, but it's going to premiere on Disney Plus? Now, it- is it possible you could have seen this thing coming? Because, you know, I'm thinking about it. Uh, Monday, January 3rd, Sony announced that they were going to move Morbius, the release date of that, back four months from January 28th through April 1st. Wednesday of this week 
We had the Recording Academy and CBS release a joint statement that the Grammys were going to be postponed. Um, they were originally supposed to be presented on January 31st, and then now they say, we look forward to celebrating music's biggest night on a future date, which will be announced soon. Same day, we had Cineplex, a big uh, Canadian exhibition company, uh, lays off nearly 5,000 part-time employees because Ontario has ordered all of its movie theaters and entertainment venues are closed due to COVID. Clearly, pandemic, Omicron. But I, I can't also help but point to something else, uh, and that was... November 10th of last year, the, the quarterly earnings call for Disney when they announced that on that date, uh, 118 million people had signed up for the streaming service in the two years they'd been up and running at that point. And, uh, and that was 2.1 million more subscribers than the company had previously announced back in August, which the problem was that Wall Street had, had been anticipating that they'd get 126 million so that they... They basically missed what Wall Street or the investment community thought was their target by $8 million. And just this week on January 6th, we found out that the next quarterly earnings call, the, the first uh, announcing the results of the first quarter of 2022, will be on, on February 9th. So that figured into it, too, You know the notion of convincing more people to sign up for Disney subscription streaming service. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of, if you look at January, there's like nothing mm -hmm. on Disney plus. Okay. There's the crash and whatever ice age movie at the mm -hmm. end of the month. Mm -hmm. I think there's another, uh, diary of a wimpy kid movie. Mm -hmm. That's literally it. March is very big. Mm -hmm. There's some stuff that they haven't announced yet that's coming out in March that'll, you know, boost subscription okay. numbers. But, you know, I think that this is definitely emblematic of, of a service that needs new, exciting stuff mm -hmm. that then people can say, oh, you've got to watch Turning Red. It's only on Disney+. Plus." Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. go get it. So, and, yeah. and, and you tweeted out today that people are looking at this through the, the wrong lens. For example, you, you talked about how the merchandise for Luca sold out almost instantaneously because so many people could see that film, uh, that Pixar movie, on Disney Plus back in June. Likewise, uh, you talked about today how Encanto, they, they, we don't talk about Bruno. That soundtrack has been available since what? Uh, you know, when the movie came out in November. I think it, yeah, I think it was a week or two before the movie came out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we don't talk about Bruno doesn't make it to number one on Spotify until after this movie shows up in Disney+. Plus. Today, if you watch what people are saying online, they kept stressing, you know, how upset, you know, the folks at Pixar must be because this is the third film of theirs to be pushed to Disney+. Plus. And you were arguing that this is actually making these films that much more popular, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, look at the Spotify uh, numbers and the amount of TikToks that people are doing for the Encanto songs. None of this was happening at Thanksgiving. All of mm -hmm. it was happening after Christmas, after it had been there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just, it's insane. You know, Matthew, whatever his name is from uh, Puck, was mm -hmm. like, said that Pixar is the new 
basically the new Disney Toon Studios. He said mm-hmm. they're they're basically a studio for direct to video stuff, and it's just like no way. No, no way. No, not at all. And in fact, I, I think the other thing you point out is that people really need to step back and take a look at, at what's really going on today in the world of entertainment. I mean, you pointed out that Mitchell's versus the Machine, Vivo, Wish Dragon, and again, we were just talking about a hotel tour in Sylvania, Transylvania. All those are Sony. And you know, then Paw Patrol, uh, Clifford, Rumble were all released straight to streaming. And there's kind of a generational thing going on here, I think. A, a lot of folks who grew up with, you know, you go to the movies, you see a film, three to four months later, it's available on, on Blu-ray, DVD. I mean, there the, the was if sort of... If that, if that. Remember when it was... I think that Jurassic Park came out on VHS like 18 months after it was in There you go, there you go. I, I yeah. mean, E.T. E. came out... Three years later. I mean, it was, I remember what a big deal it was when it was finally on VHS, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's not, it's not like that anymore. And and people are used to Mm -hmm. sitting down with their families. As people are moaning about the whole Pixar must be upset thing. You, you talked right off the bat. It's like, look, I just got an alert from the New York times about the infection hospitals are raised hospitalization rate with kids. So, you know, what what film is going to, for kids, is going to go into theaters at this point? It's people in Hollywood in the corner offices making some really hard decisions. Yes. And and more to the point, the other thing I think people really are overlooking is look at what's going on right now. I mean, Paramount Scream is still headed into theaters this coming Friday, January 14th. Uh, you know, they, Jack- can, they can pull the trigger and put it on Paramount Plus, you know. I feel like, you know, that. think about how, how Halloween Kills was a Peacock slash theatrical, mm-hmm. and I'm sure it moved some Peacock numbers, mm-hmm. whatever the Peacock numbers were. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that one, I think, like, all everything you're about to say could easily change. But go ahead, please tell us what else is coming up. We have Jackass Forever coming out February 4th. We have Death on the Nile, which obviously Disney in 20th century have changed the release dates on a couple of times, So, it, but that's coming out February 11th. And in fact, Sony Columbia Pictures Uncharted, based on the game, but potentially a, a whole new franchise for that studio, starring Tom Holland, who, who right now has never been hotter coming off of Spider-Man No Way Home. And that's headed into theaters on February 18th. And, and I guess just to bring this full circle... Streaming really worked well for Luca. I mean, you were collecting those limited edition Toy Story toys. And, oh you know, yeah, the what are they called? Yeah, they they're they're sort of movie accurate Toy Story. Toys. There we go. Yeah. There we go. And so I was I was looking at my local Target for one that the Drew was trying to chase down, and the Luca toys were there, you know, and I literally, I went in on a Wednesday and I, I said to Drew, I have found your toy. And, and, and Drew was like, no, Jim, that's the common toy, not the movie accurate toy. Go back and look again. <laughs> but in two days, shelves full of Lucas stuff, the Pixar section, I came back bare. People had swept in and snatched up every single Luca item. Yeah. I was at World of Disney at Disneyland and they said, we had Luca stuff. We sold out. We had to put out some soul stuff that we had in the back uh, that didn't sell, <laughs> which I, I don't think Pete Doctor is listening, but I apologize if that hurts your okay. feelings. But that, that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, there was not a stitch of it at the parks. 
And speaking of the parks, though, that Luca does have representation. Enchanted, the new nighttime fireworks show uh, at the parks. And um, by the way, speaking of Luca, uh, when we get back, Drew's going to talk about an interview that he recently did with the director of that film for the rap. And uh, what he had to say about the LGBT community's take on on this Pixar film. This interview that you just did with uh, Enrico Casarosa, I read it yesterday afternoon and then actually went back and watched, well, not only Luca, but also made a point of watching uh, Chao Alberto, the new short by McKenna Harris that sort of continues the story of the film. So good. Yeah, it is. It actually, in a lot of ways, it's an exclamation point on the end of a, a truly great film. And can you talk about kind of the focus of this piece and the conversation yeah. you had with Enrico? Sure. I, I met with Enrico a few months ago by the pool, obviously, Jim. <laughs> there I mean, we go. As a, a, you know, you got to do that as a Luke. This was, this was when we thought we were out of the woods a little bit. But, you know, I, I wanted to ask him about you know, the LGBTQ response to the movie, because obviously it's mm-hmm. very overwhelming and a lot of people see themselves in the movie. And I thought his his response was very sweet. And they said, you know, we didn't think about that specifically, but who knows, you know, next summer, two of them might be together. Or, you know, we don't know who, if it's Julia and Alberto or Alberto and Luca mm-hmm. or Luca and Julia. But, you know, I thought it was a really gracious mm-hmm. way to talk about it, he said, with a movie that's that that's about this, we said, let's be open, let's be curious about each other, let's embrace each other. And mm-hmm. I think we need to embrace all the different ways that, that can really manifest. So there's no crush yet, he says. We kept on saying, well, next summer probably one of them will have a crush on one another. But mm-hmm. he loves that people are embracing it. You know, and they, he says they were surprised by the amount of people who talked about a romance. That's the thing with a movie is... The ideas that get tossed aside, like the wasn't the, didn't the film end at one point with a kaiju rising up out of the the ocean and they had yes. to battle that. Yeah, and instead they ended up with this really sweet film that is really a very intimate story. And the fact that the LGB community has wrapped its arms around this film. And in fact, what's so funny is if you go to YouTube and you see the number of members of the LGBT community. They've edited the film down so it's only <laughs> Luca and Alberto and it's only significant looks. And it just, it really is genuinely sweet. And, yeah. and, and and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that this is a piece of audio where basically it's somebody saying that, you know, when I was five, I thought I was gay because I was gay. It's everybody sort of performing this piece and putting their spin on it. But that's the notion that, when you know, you know. And the yeah. fact that this is a story featuring young boys, maybe some people are reading a little too much into it and like, you know, Enrico said, maybe next summer, maybe next summer. Right. But again, people have made this their story, have embraced it that strongly and, and just if sort of reading things into it. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that he said they were thinking more about race than sexuality when they were talking about the otherness that these kids were going through. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was very interesting, and I would have not, I would not have picked up on that. Well, but but you see, that's the thing when you you're working in a movie, you are just dealing with it the microscopic level. And when I was watching it again last night, it was just the the lighting, the design is just so amazing. But it's a wonderful framework for this this emotional little story. And and in fact, that's the thing of when you think about Alberto's big scenes. 
in the movie, you know, when, when he feels betrayed by Luca, you know, and has kind of his meltdown, to bookend that with the, the Chow Alberto scene where he's, you know, he, he's burned the boat and he's running away from Maximo and the whole let me go, dad, and then the big face like, oh, jeez. And then to just have, oh, that's Syrians. Just very, very sweet. But weren't we talking earlier about, you know, in much the same way of Doug days that we might maybe get some more stories set in this world? Is that... I would be surprised if we don't go back to Puerto Rosso. I think it's a wonderful place to visit. And I know we saw some... Some surveys. God knows you love surveys, Jim. I, I do. Um, I do. <laughs> uh, you know, about how much people were enjoying it. But, yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see a, a Doug Day-style mm-hmm. show or even one with longer episodes. You know, we're going to we're gonna actually see longer Pixar stuff coming starting true. next year in 2023 mm-hmm. with Win or Lose. So, yeah, hopefully we'll get more Luca soon. But, again, all of these people who are talking about Oh my God, you know, Pixar stuff is being sent to Disney Plus. I think they are overlooking things like Doug Days. Face it, Bob Peterson didn't know going into that this was going to be one of the final things that Edward Asner worked on. Yeah. But it's it's a lovely piece of work. It really is. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I think it's one of the best things that was on Disney Plus last year. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, you know, just I, I think this whole mindset of oh it's on disney plus it has to be lesser is something people really need to let go of because there's some great great stuff on there so anyway we were talking about returning to places maybe going back to Puerto rosa and drew and i recently got the chance to go back to transylvania to view the fourth and final film of this franchise and not only that we actually got to talk with the the two directors of this project Derek Dryman and Jennifer Kluska. I wanted to know sort of what it was like taking over this such an iconic franchise from, you know, no pressure, one of the modern greats uh, of animation. I mean, it was just so ridiculously fun. I mean, <laughs> playing playing with these characters in this sandbox and getting to just really sink your teeth into just old fashioned animation in a way that not a lot of other franchises or movies are doing was just so unique and wonderful. What's intriguing to me about Hotel Transylvania Transformania, it's a deceptively ambitious film because of, I mean, think about it. Lots of new sets and settings, the South American jungles, caves, rivers, etc. Also, lots of new versions of characters we already knew. I mean, Drac, Johnny, Wayne, Frank, Murray, and Griffin. And by my count, there's at least four different versions of Johnny as a dragon, the, the introductory, the flying, the enraged, and then enraged kaiju. And for this to be your first directing assignment, that's got to be crazy. It was definitely a challenge to take the characters that the audience is aware of, mm-hmm. change their design, but then also make it make them recognizable to the audience so we don't have to introduce them, reintroduce them. You know, that, that was definitely tricky and took a lot of... You know, luckily we have a great production design designer and art director and, uh, you know, and character designer. And, and so definitely a lot of work, a lot of people, a lot of opinions, a lot of back and forth to, to get it, you know. And then, you know, and then we have the cast, which are great. And their voices really do a lot of work in that respect. You, you hear the you hear David Spade's voice, you know, come out of that funny looking guy. And it, mm-hmm. and it, and it somehow says, oh, that's the Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. Not all the voices are back, though. Can you talk a little bit about Adam Sandler and Kevin James are missing and, and we miss them, but obviously you have great 
great replacements in this. Can you talk about that? Was it a challenge? I mean, working with Brian as Brian Hall as Drac was it was really great. He he is such first and foremost such a, an animation, just absolute nerd. I remember early on we were going to show him some uh, rough animation, you know, because you want people excited. And, and you know, you do the classic thing when you're talking to people who are outside of animation, where you try to explain what they're going to see, because it's going to be very rough and sort of not lit and, and, and you know, all the rendering is done. And, and so we sort of start down that spiel. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 this is rough anim, you know, maybe some layout, lighting's not done. I got it. I got it. Like, and it was just, he was completely there. And, and he just absolutely just threw himself into this character. And I think we always wanted Drac you know, even as a human to feel that he was, a, he was different. He was vulnerable and, 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 and has a sort of different edge to him. And, and Brian really explored the different facets of who that character could be in a way that I think really turned out, you know, very satisfyingly. Yeah. I think the, the track in this movie, you know, we push him a lot harder. So he's, he's upset more. He's screaming more. He's, he, you know, he's crying more. Like he's doing things that the track in the other movies didn't really do. And, and Brian's game to, you know, he's, he'll scream all day. You know, we, he, he might be screaming somewhere right now, you know, like he's really just open to, to, you know, going full tilt, which is super helpful when, and when you're trying to, like you said, like he's a character, the audience knows, but we're going to do things to him that he, that's never happened before. And how do you make that believable, interesting, unique, but still feels like the same guy. You know, we were, I think we were lucky to have Brian uh, helping us do that. Now, speaking of it, you, you mentioned, you know, the audience familiar with this character. Face it, it's the fourth film in the franchise. Again, you start off with a story about Kennedy, but at the same time, were there any concerns given that there is also, in addition to the three earlier films, there's also Hotel Transylvania, the series, which didn't that have Mavis kind of running the hotel? So was there any concern as you went into this that we're kind of going over turf we've done before? Or, or was that the whole point of the change in venue the, the, with so much of the story set in South America? Well, I think a lot of the franchise is there's sort of what's going on at the surface, but what's underneath that is always sort of a family dynamic. And every movie has sort of based itself on a different, usually like a different life stage, especially a life stage for Drac, you know, so the first movie is very, you know, classic father, the bride, he he has this daughter who's growing up and he's reluctant to let her go and he wants to protect her. And then, of course, you've got the new boyfriend who becomes the husband coming in, like what that tension is and the relationship that ends up growing between Drac and Johnny and that reluctant acceptance, which we'll explore further in our film. The second one, you've got becoming a grandfather with Dennis and who is this child? Is he going to be what I want him to be learning that way? And then the third one is all about finding new love when you didn't think that was possible. And what does that mean after you've lost a spouse? And so it felt like taking Drac into a fourth movie, into that life stage where he's had all these developments, he's he's at a new phase in his life, he's going to let go, he's going to move on. And what does that mean when you're experiencing that type of change? How do you take that character through that? And so the whole idea of really embracing change as a theme, as something we want to physically manifest for Drac and how he accepts this, you know, this life phase, you know, that he's now going through, felt like it was a natural progression and not sort of just rehashing old ground. Like we want to see that character go through that. What I've always loved about these movies is how sort of gag oriented they are. They really do sort of pull out all stops for the gags. But I wanted to know uh, from you guys' perspective as filmmakers, how do you balance that kind of necessity and also that kind of expectation versus telling a story that is still sort of emotionally resonant and connects with an audience in that way? Uh, I would say 
you know, a story, you know, the Hotel Transylvania, you know, franchise, it, it, it's a comedy. Obviously, they're all comedies. You know, I think it's, and it's, a lot of us have been working in comedy for a long time. So it kind of, there's a natural, it just feels natural to do it that way. So I think the underlying story is a family uh, dynamic. There's some drama to it. There's some, there's some real feelings there, but then how do you tell this story? You, you know, and, and so we tell this story uh, through comedy, through jokes, through, 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 you know, through funny situations, through slapstick. I don't think it lessens the, the emotion to it. I don't think it undercuts it. I think you, you still feel those things, but then how the characters are going about doing what they're doing is, is a funny, you know, is funny. So, so I don't, I don't think one, I don't think one takes away from the other. I also think that for me, especially there, there, there can be a point, especially in family movies where the earnestness gets a little dense in, in some cases. And, and I think there is something very fun and natural. And I think we even do it naturally with ourselves where it, comedy allows you to, to have a moment when you're saying something in the middle of all this that's very real and very heartfelt and very believable and earnest but then you go back to the comedy and it kind of like it it, it takes the edge off that and it makes it by again subverting it slightly with laughs it actually lets it land in a more heartfelt way from the very first one of these the animation style that Kennedy sort of established for this world is is very much the bob clampett Tex Avery, really extreme takes. And you guys really kept that going. I mean, the sequence when Van Helsing is taking Johnny through his lab and, you know, sort of unfolding to get under things. And the scene where Drac is is chasing Johnny the dragon through the halls of the hotel. How do you board something like that with so many extremes for the animation? Uh, you can talk about Van Helsing in a second. I'm going to talk about Johnny real quick first. So the scene, I think in particular, where, where Johnny is running through the hallway, it's a mm-hmm. really great that you sort of pinpointed that scene. First of all, boarded by Dave Feiss, amazing mm-hmm. board artist, animation director with a long history and again, classical animation and TV, you know, mm-hmm. really great, funny poses to work with. But also that sequence was really one of the first ones we got into animation. And, you know, based on, on, on the schedule and how we were going, that was really the template for what does Johnny monster look like? What does he move like? How does he act like as a monster? So that was really a scene where we had this amazing board foundation, very, very strong. But then the animators were also like using that as sort of like their test for what this guy does. So if you watch that scene, it is bonkers. He is moving all sorts of crazy oh, yeah. which ways and like different in different in different scenes. And, and, and it's, it's just sort of pulling and pushing this rig and really trying to make it do what the what the hotel T-Rigs have always done. And I think one of the great things about the franchise that Gendy always very much embraced is that if the style of the animation changes slightly from shot to shot, there's not a lot of emphasis on having to be on model because what's What's important is the joke and the funny pose and the pushed expression. And I think that sequence, you really see the gamut of what the animators can do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Gendy was what the 12th uh, filmmaker or something on the first one. Uh, Did either of you uh, understand now what a pain in the ass putting one of these movies together is? (laughs) Was there that moment like, oh, now I understand why it took 12 uh, people to get the first one done. Not that I was there, but I I would think that the 12 very, you know, whatever many people were in there before, I think what happened was Gendy came in with his vision of what it could be. And that's what they realized. Oh, that's, that's the way to go. You know, I don't know that, you know, Gendy was the one that brought that 
cartoony, like you said, you're you're, you're kind of referencing all the old animation uh, directors. Like that came from Gandhi. That wasn't there before. Right. So you know, these movies are all hard. You know, uh, just by nature, they're <laughs> very hard to do. Um, but they're also fun. You know, they're 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 you know, you get to really do something. Like on this movie, you get to do something that no other movie's doing. You know, that cartoony, two D inspired, uh, drawing inspired uh, CG animation. You know, is is very unique. And so to have the opportunity to do that in the world today is, is, is pretty, is pretty rare. So, so it's, it's, you know, it's hard, but it's super fun. But at the same time, I mean, Gennady obviously put his imprint on this thing with the first film. I got to say though, with four, there's at least one set piece in this, the crystal cave where the monsters are, are lost and confused. What a visual highlight. I mean, that scene was absolutely amazing. And, can you talk about how you, you go about boarding something like that? Well, the first thing is that we did know right from the beginning that we wanted a very, very visual set piece for that scene, because I mm. think the third movie has a very fun audio set piece. You know, it is the Macarena. That's that's your big moment in Act 3. So mm. we thought, well, we don't want to do that ground again. What can we do that is entirely visual? And so we kind of wanted to bookend the, the MacGuffin of the movie being this crystal they have to find so it takes us to a place where we get to do these absolutely insane visuals and and a, a lot of it was just you know honestly i mean derek you can speak to the boarding because i know you boarded a lot of the test sequences and they're just making funny faces and mirrors yeah i mean you know the, the technical question of like how do you you know come up with those things um you know, a is casting. You, you know, we had uh, Scott Underwood was is is a super funny. I don't know if he's an animator or not, but he's a, he's a storyboard artist. But he 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 draws as if he's animating, and we and and you know you unleash him into that world and say, hey, um, you know, this is the premise. The characters are walking through a hall of mirrors. They're all kind of broken and sharded. So like, where does your imagination take you? You know, and so you know you have a guy who's uh, you know been storyboarding for years he's super talented and he he kind of like okay you know characters walking from one side of the room to the other side of the room he could do it a million different ways it's where you have the the unique talents of that person that that storyboard artist comes in with his ideas and he 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 contributes something that if you would have cast to someone else you would we would have gotten something different so it's you know when you see these movies you don't you know who knows the people behind it but it, it's really what you see is made from the individual talents that are working on the movies. And it's the movie's only as good as the people on it. And I think that sequence was, a, again, a really interesting one as well, because as you know, going through the process, layout always gets a hard time. Like those guys, you know, God bless them. They just like, they get all the difficulty of someone falling in love with a board, you know, drawing that they think is really funny that they can't do in layout. So they, you know, and then when they fix things, no one notices. So that's a sequence where having to craft all these facets in a way which gives the animators the literally the planes on which to make these faces and do the animation in a way that works. Like they are also, in addition to the really great boarding, some really unsung heroes of of that sequence to really let the animators shine. And then of course the animators themselves like really brought a lot of amazing jokes to that sequence and how you can you know facet these further and where you want the face to be and, and where the, this eye is going versus that mouth it was it was i think the best part of animation being an iterative and collaborative industry definitely i would say that's to add to what jen is saying 
it, when this works best, it's, it's, you know, you have an idea in the writing room and then, and then it gets improved in the storyboard phase that gets improved in the, you know, the layout phase that gets improved in the animation. And you know, it just, everybody's kind of taking the baton and then doing their best on their, whatever stage they're on, on the, you know, the, the, what the you know, the fire chain, you know, wherever they are at it, they do their best and it just makes it, you know, better and better. And that's, that's really the impressive thing about working on this level. When you're working at like a, at a Sony level of animation, it just gets better and better and better. And it's, as a director, you're just like, wow, this is way better than I thought it would be. <laughs> you know, <laughs> surprising. Obviously that collaboration is key, but can you talk about what it was like making the movie under these conditions? I imagine all of animation was probably done in during quarantine. Um, so yeah, I would love to know how that, how that was for you guys. I feel like it's always disappointing when I give this answer because everyone always expects like, oh, this was so difficult. And you know what? It it was. It was tricky, but it was it was it was actually basically fine. Like everyone, to Derek's point, like on on the the team, like especially at you know at Spy and Spa, like like these movies are in their blood and they they know it so well. And everyone just sort of came to the table, and it really felt like I sort of compare going to home as like being on a ship and then stepping onto a dock. Like it was. It felt like the transition was sort of that seamless and I know it wasn't and people worked very hard to make it that way but you know it was it was actually really great the tricky thing was in the voice records okay why why was that tricky well because I you can talk more than this but you know you were sometimes you had actors going onto a stage but you weren't there because of you know the COVID protocols uh other times you know you were recording like we had Catherine Hahn like in her closet and we had you know Andy Samberg, like under a blanket, you know, like at home trying to muffle, you know, the echoes. And and it was, it was very, that was probably the most amusing and tricky part of it. Yeah. There's def- there's a technical element to recording, especially, right? Like you guys know you, you're recording, you know, right now, like there's that, there's that very, you know, you go into a studio and everything's has been crafted how you know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars are made in this room to to make it soundproof and the perfect microphone and like we did this movie we would send you know you send an ipad to them and say go in your go in your closet and uh you know put a blanket over your head and let's record and it's like the good side of that is like it doesn't have to be perfect to make one of these things you can you can you can fudge here and there and and someone fixes it in the mix and the audience hears it and like well they're they maybe they sound a little bit more muffled but they don't know you know they, you know it's it, it, it works fine it sounded amazing Derek. it sounded amazing yes work sounded amazing yeah <laughs> again lots of fun ideas in regard to to watching the crew that we've known for the first three films in human form but were there any monsters into human ideas that you had on the table that didn't make it into the film that you wished did or? Oh gosh. I think, I think there were, there were a lot of ideas and I think we did work really hard to try and get the, the, the best joke for the character on the screen and, and also in a way where you, you recognize them. And there was, you know, I think, I think the big one was Blobby. There was a lot of debate as to whether or not Blobby was going to be a human, I think. And, and, and if he was a human, was he like, uh, would he be vocal? Like, would he, you know, would he speak in the very area? Like, like, what is, what is the fun joke with Blobby? And at the end of the day, you know, when you, when you have all these casts of characters, like it, it just seemed the funniest thing was to just make him jelly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank you guys both so much for taking the time. Uh, I know we both were big fans of the movie and, and it means a lot. So hopefully we'll talk on the next one. Awesome. Thanks so much. 
want to thank uh, Derek Dryman and Jennifer Kluska, uh, again, the, the co-directors of Hotel Transylvania, Transformania, for making time to talk with Drew and I today. Uh, and again, the fourth and final film of the Sony Pictures Animation franchise will be available for streaming on Amazon Prime Video starting this Friday, January 14th. Though, Drew, did you see what they are doing to help promote this film in, in the no. week? Oh, God. Amazon Prime Video uh, evidently got a, a group rate on inflatables because they have these giant character balloons. They are uh, running around the country. Uh, for example, they've got a 12-foot-tall blobby. He's going to be at Discovery Green Houston. That's for January 17th uh, through the 18th. And then at the he's going to be at the original Farmer's Market in L.A. January 13th through the 16th. Meanwhile, there are two monster buses driving around the country, the Johnny Monster Bus. They'll be in Pennsylvania, outside of the, the Philadelphia Art Museum on the, uh, by the Rocky Steps. They'll also be in Austin at the Domain. Uh, do, do we know that, the Domain? Yes, oh. of course. I know the Domain. Sure. <laughs> cool. I'm actually giving some semi-serious thought. It's going to be in down in Massachusetts on January 16th. At the the Linfield, but the Amazon, oh my God, it's the Amazon bookstore. I've been meaning to go there. Ooh. And uh, they finish, the the second bus finishes its run. It goes to Houston to Discovery Green. Beyond that, Drew, uh, just want to put a button on the show here. You know, again, we've been talking about so many streaming services today. We, We haven't mentioned Netflix yet. And so there's a new Scott Pilgrim anime coming? Yes, yes. It looks like it is going to be with the creator, Brian Lee O'Malley, and uh, David ben, ben David Grabinski are, are teaming up to bring this show to Netflix because Netflix is very invested in anime and they're very invested in pre-existing IP, so it makes perfect sense. And if you've read the comic book or seen the movie, you know how indebted it is to anime to begin with, so it makes perfect sense to me. Oh, um, no, 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 I think no. it'll be great. No, I can't wait. Likewise, you had some additional info about the Batman animated series that J.J. Abrams is working on. Yeah, Batman Cape Crusader, which at DC Fandom last year uh, was described as more Batman the Animated Series than Batman the Animated Series. Um, That is getting a great new writer uh, Mm. named Ed Brubaker, who if you've read any of his comics, I suggest, Mm. you know, he he did a... Uh, a great run on Captain America, but he also does his own comic books like Criminal. And he is just a genius. And so he will be running the writer's room along with Bruce Tim, who is a longtime Warner animation guy and worked on Batman the Animated Series. So, uh, yeah, he's going to have an executive producer credit on the show. The show will have 10 episodes in its first season, Mm -hmm. and Brubaker will be the head writer. So... All very exciting stuff on the animation streaming front. Very so, cool. Yeah. Cow. Okay. Well, can't wait for that. Um, speaking of other things I can't wait for, I, I again, I know I do this every week, folks, but seriously, if you are not listening to Light the Fuse, you are missing out on so much great Hollywood history. And you've been doing an amazing series uh, over the past couple of months about ghost protocol and and that's continuing right or oh yeah we've got two we will this week we'll have our second part of our anthony giacchino Mm -hmm. episode and we actually talk about uh the great documentary he did for the iron giant blu-ray um 
which kind of charts the development and release of that film, which if you have that Blu-ray, you know how great that documentary, you know what, have you, you've watched that documentary, right? Of course, of course. Okay, yeah. So, you, yeah, you hear you hear Brad Bird basically on the day the movie opens, he goes to a. Um, oh, good. What You're going to tell the story. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta yeah, tell. Yeah, he story. goes to a Johnny Rockets. There's no merchandise there. There's supposed to be all this tie-in stuff. He goes to the theater. The the special mylar, you know, thing that's supposed to say what the movie it's missing. I mean, it is it is one of the most profoundly depressing but hilarious stories you will ever oh, hear. Yeah. Yeah, and and oh, and again, that's worth it because aren't there three little additional scenes that they animated things that they cut from? Uh, there production? are two additional scenes. Yeah, there we go. The, okay. the Tomorrowland scene and then the Giant's mm. Dream scene, which yeah. you finally got to add in. It's yeah. a really wonderful Blu-ray. It's, oh no, no, absolutely. I, I yeah. cannot say enough. But anyway, that's that's who's on the ne- the next episodes, and we've got some actors that were in Ghost Protocol and. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we keep we're keeping on chugging, Jim. That's a great show. And more to the point, if you're not following Drew on social media, and again, I, I, we talked about this in the tar- front of the show. The entire world is going in one direction, talking about oh, you know, Turning Red is going to Disney Plus, and how terrible this is. And the one place that you're getting a different take, a smart take, is you know on Drew's Twitter feed. So you know, uh, which we, we talked about at length on today's show. So yeah. uh, seriously, if, if you, you you want a different take on what's going on in entertainment news you need to be following drew on social media and how can they do that drew oh they can do that uh, uh follow me at drew tailored like a tailored shirt on instagram and twitter and twitter's been a particularly active day today so i you know <laughs> if you want to chime in even, even though this is a couple days later you can chime in and yeah. and yeah. uh throw a few licks in there but yeah speaking of social media nancy would like me to remind you that you can find us on twitter and instagram is jim hill media and over on facebook it is jim hill media news Beyond that, uh, if you could do Drew and I a favor, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, well, not just the show you're listening to now, fine-tuning, but also Light the Fuse, that would be hugely helpful. And uh, and if you really, really, really like what you heard here tonight, you want to head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be helpful too. Thanks for listening, folks, and Drew and I will be back soon. <laughs>